The Forum on Workplace Inclusion's 2021 podcast series is sponsored by Best Buy. More diversity in tech means more ideas that can change the world. Learn more at bestbuy.com slash more of this. Did you miss the opportunity to join us live at the 2021 Forum Annual Conference? Or maybe you're hearing about the U.S.'s largest workplace DEI conference for the first time. Well, for the first time ever, we're offering our complete 33rd annual conference, Workplace Revolution On Demand. The On Demand package includes access to our workshops, book readings, half-day featured sessions, art and wellness workshops, our Marketplace of Ideas Exhibitor Showcase, half-day higher education industry session, 16 trend talks, and five general sessions. That's the Forum 2021 Annual Conference On Demand. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org to get access today. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for tuning in for today's special podcast, From Bystander to Ally, continued with Tatiana Fertilmeister of Connecting Differences and Dr. Daniel Cantor-Yalowitz of DCY Consulting. I'm Ben Rue, Program Associate here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. As the name suggests, this podcast is a continuation of our April webinar, From Bystander to Ally. There were so many wonderful questions that we weren't able to get to during that webinar. Tatiana and Daniel were gracious enough to come back and so we can answer a few of those questions. So without further ado, let's hop in. Thank you so much, Tatiana and Daniel, for agreeing to come back to do this follow-up podcast. We had so many great questions that we couldn't get to, so we're really excited to, you know, get to some, get to answer some more of those. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, it's great that we have this opportunity to keep this conversation going. It's definitely a very important topic from bystander to ally. Yeah, more and more each day. So let's just jump right into it. So the very first question that was asked is, is active bystander the same as ally? So uh, we don't use those terms interchangeably. I mean, there's, there is there is a difference. And it's important, I think, to understand those differences uh, between allyship and active bystanding. Um, uh, what I would think is that, um, an active bystander is actually present in the situation. Um, they're uh, a, a witness, they're in the same situation that is going on. Uh, and an ally can be, but doesn't have to be. Um, an ally is someone who is providing ongoing support and commitment, um, uh, can be within the situation, but it's also beyond the situation. So one can have an ally who is not present during an incident or a situation, um, but they're involved and they're engaged and they're supportive. Um, an active bystander is more someone who is there and present at a given moment uh, in time uh, 
for the for the duration of a situation. So that's one way that I've come to look at the two as being slightly different. Um, Tatiana, do you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, one thing that I want to say is that if I am an ally in my intention and if I'm an ally in my uh, action, which means that I uh, have a commitment to ongoingly um, focus on situations that need uh, allyship, if I find myself in the situation that calls for me to become an active bystander, I walk by something, I am present for a conversation, uh, the likelihood of me stepping forward and actually taking a more active position is higher if I am a true ally because, because I am kind of more prepared for it. If I see myself as an ally, but indeed it is more of a performative allyship, I say the right things, but I don't put any substance behind it, then it might be quite disappointing for somebody who expects me to step in on their behalf in the situation when I am really not doing it because I am not prepared for, for action. So it can be uh, a moment of knowing, am I or am I not a true ally? One more piece, if I can add, is that an ally uh, really is someone who sees a given situation as it occurs on a larger systemic level. They they're, uh, may or may not be involved directly at the moment, but they're understanding the larger social or historical context uh, out of which a particular scene or situation occurs. And uh, they will take some form of action, uh, although it may not be in the moment. They may write an article, they may do something else that uh, enables others to see them as an act of support um, to a person to whom harm doing is being done. Uh, and so they're engaged also on a more ethical um, level uh, of the situation, not only the pragmatic level. Thanks. For, uh, and oh, and one thing to say about the active bystander, I might be an active bystander one time and one time only. I might be an active bystander on behalf of my friend, but not in the situation in general. Yeah. So it 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 really varies. There is this intersection of the moment with kind of ongoing reality. Yeah, so how we need to look at what it is to be a bystander and what it is to be an ally. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for clearing Thank clarifying you. that. And where did you get your definitions of bystander and ally and other terms? Well, we've been working with this for several years. Uh, in 2016, I worked with an organization called Quabbin Mediation, which is uh, in West Central Massachusetts, and I worked. Uh, with the executive director Sharon Tracy uh, and building a national curriculum for K through 12. And after doing some exhaustive research, again, this is five years ago, um, we built uh, a terminology, a glossary of terms that we have been using in the five years since then. And in ongoing discussions, Tatiana and I and other work that we've done have come to settle on an understanding of the terms um, based on their practicality. Uh, and so that's where we stand 
Now, where did you get your definitions of bystander and ally and other terms? Well, Tatiana and I have been working with, with the terminology that we're currently using for several years now in our workshops and programs. Uh, for me, it began in, in 2016 when I uh, began as a consultant with the Quabbin Mediation Program, which is in West Central Massachusetts, not far from my hometown. And I was hired on to help build a national curriculum for K through 12 in training active bystanders. So we worked hard then to look at the current research and what was being said and written and done around basic terms, such as active bystander and ally and others, and came up with the terminology to keep it simple, to keep it practical and pragmatic. And that's the terminology that uh, Tatiana and I have settled on in the years that we've been working with it. I think it is always a very good question when we are talking about anything in diversity to uh, where the terms are coming from, how do we define them? Uh, because what quite often happening is that people are using the same words, but maybe put different meaning in them. So clarifying uh, the definitions is something that we always, always do in our work. Thank you. And you mentioned um, so like different situations and intersectionality in your first question. Is, is someone still considered to be an ally if someone tells them about an incident and they are in a position to respond or do something, but they don't? Um, my uh, very simple question is no. <laughs> uh, definitely, there are all kinds of complicated circumstances that can be uh, addressed. Uh, but the reality of being an ally is that if I am an ally and if I am on the position to make a difference in the situation, and I am doing nothing, uh, then definitely I'm not an ally. What exactly it means to be on the position to do something um, needs to be maybe a little bit more um, uncovered, yeah? Because uh, if let's say I am a manager and I become aware that something is going on in my team and I do nothing, it is one thing. If I am a peer and I do nothing, it's a little bit of a different thing because what I can do as a peer and what I can do as a manager is different. Um, and also what are the expectations of what it is that the person expects me to do? Yeah, because sometimes if I am struggling, if I am in need of support and in need of somebody to be my ally, I might have my own ideas of what it is that I want to see happening that might not be possible. What I think is absolutely essential that if somebody comes to me and they need me to be an ally, uh, I need to do a really, really good listening. I need to have to get a really good understanding of what's going on. I need to help the person to take a breath and slow down a little bit so that we together can
do a better analysis of what's going on and come up with some uh, strategy of what uh, what can be done. So it's not a knee-jerk reaction, but doing nothing, uh, showing no interest, no support, no understanding, uh, or just saying, oh, yeah, I'm with you and still doing nothing. No, you cannot be an ally if you, if you act like that. I think the last piece that Tatiana mentioned, I'd like to talk about that for a moment. That That's the definition of a cheerleader. Uh, someone who's on the sidelines cheering on and encouraging. Uh, but, but to move to being an ally, there's two pieces to it in my mind. One is addressing the context of a situation. And this is the larger philosophical, ethical, political situation. Uh, and people who write letters to the editor, uh, who are involved in media and so on, uh, can impact the situation uh, indirectly in that way and be an ally by focusing on context. Focusing on content is, is sometimes more direct and getting involved in a situation uh, through active allyship really means uh, being engaged, uh, participating with someone uh, as an act of support and, and moving forward with them in time and space. So to me, an ally can work both in content, context, and both. But working with neither, well, then we are talking about uh, someone who's more of a cheerleader. And it's not the same. Thank you. Uh, the, the, the other thing that I, uh, I believe uh, makes allyship different from bystanding and makes an ally to be such an important uh, figure in a situation is that allies need to look not only at the moment of what happened and how can I support you in this moment, but what are the systemic parts of what's happening? Uh, did something that happened was just completely random, just, you know, you, you had a bad interaction with the person uh, and you need some support in it, or is it a part of uh, kind of a systematic what happens all the time that needs to be addressed? So that would be another layer of being an ally. And in this question, when the person says somebody who is on the position to do it, my, my thinking is that the person who asked this question also implies that uh, somebody who is in a position to see it on the system level, somebody who is in a position to make changes in the system or advocate for changes in the system uh, beyond just, uh, you know, the one one incident. Yeah, and and in that in that sense, and you know, thinking of systemic th things that need to be changed or could be changed, or um, we we got this question a lot, and a lot of people have been asking this question: is um, what else could bystanders have done during the murder of George Floyd? If anything, well, first of all, we have to remember that they that those who were uh, bystanders uh, during this this murder were actually acting in heroic ways. I mean, it may not sound uh, heavily active, but even having a cell phone and taking the video is what has brought this whole situation to national and international attention. It's brought it to trial. There's actual evidence. And it's, it's not easy to stand up in the face of, of uh, violence 
that's as heinous as the George Floyd murder and calmly videotape a situation. Uh, and, and there was more than one person doing that. Um, and there were others who were calling the police on the police uh, and such. But I also want to talk about one of the major distinctions when you're talking about uh, serving as an ally or more particularly as an active bystander um, with police is that there are both written and unwritten rules in terms of how one can intervene. And to have done anything more would have put someone's life and livelihood in jeopardy, no question. Uh, certainly an arrest would have been easily made uh, for interrupting a situation. Uh, there, there could have been violence perpetrated on someone else if they'd stepped in more directly. And part of that is a term that I think of as being very, very powerful when situations are inherently unequal. And we call that power asymmetry. And that takes place when it's, it's very clear that one person or group has power over another. And in this case, there's police and there's citizens. The police are armed, uh, citizens for the most part are not. And so there's an unwritten power asymmetry that's built that was built into the George Floyd murder. And that made a difference in terms of how uh, citizens uh, and bystanders could act or not act, at least in my opinion. I will take it a little differently. Um, as a mental health professional, I've done a fair amount of grief counseling. And I see this uh, situation as filled with grief because uh, here are a bunch of people, absolutely random people going about their business, whatever brought them to this particular point in on Minneapolis street. Uh, and all of a sudden they are witnessing a person being murdered. Uh, many of them identify with this person as somebody who looks like them, like their brother, their father, uh, which makes it even more difficult to just be there. Uh, we need to think about these people also as survivors, survivors of very deeply traumatizing situation. Uh, as uh, bystanders, they've done pretty much anything and everything that they could possibly think about. There was recording, there was calling out and uh, making noise and, uh, you know, bringing attention and calling police. And uh, there was uh, a woman there who was a firefighter of duty, who was uh, trying to offer uh, her help, you know. So people were doing everything that they could possibly do. And what they're left with now is uh, a really deep unresolved grief reaction that comes in the form of deep guilt and anger. Yeah? And this guilt goes against themselves. Why didn't I do more? There was nothing more to do. But people will carry it around for a long time. Yeah? Uh, and then there is uh, anger that needs to go somewhere. And I am uh, 
talking about it right now, not all, you know, definitely about this specific uh, situation that we are all aware of with George Floyd being murdered and trial that is about to end. We are kind of having this conversation on the day where he is uh, doing its deliberation. But in any situation when you find yourself as a bystander or you are an ally and you find yourself pushing the wall that you cannot push, that you cannot change, it comes with the depth of uh, emotional leftovers uh, that uh, need to be acknowledged and processed. Otherwise, uh, people end up carrying trauma around. Those who experienced some injustice and those who witnessed it and felt, you know, incapable uh, of making a difference no matter what they tried, um, it is damaging for for everybody. So in any organization where being an ally uh, means that you are trying and trying and trying and nothing changes, or being an active bystander in the situation and feeling that nothing changes, uh, that corrodes the organization, that corrodes the morale of the organization, uh, not less than the effect of injustice or mistreatment of the person itself. So it just kind of doubles the negative effect of, of something uh, happening. I, I, yeah, I like that, that call, they're referring to them as survivors because I'm sure a lot of them do feel a lot of guilt and wish they could do more, but you're right, Daniel, you're right. They are really heroes for what they did do and what they were able to do. And especially, you know, considering they were up against the police and I'm sure a lot of them are opposed to conflict, especially, you know, with the police. Um, one of the questions asked, like in that regard, like what if you are naturally opposed to conflict and confrontation, but want to speak up or act? How does one train their brain to welcome conflict? I think it is very important for us not to think in either or. Either I go all the way or I do nothing. Yeah? Either it has to be a conflict or there is nothing that I can do. Um, let me give you just maybe a couple of examples. Yeah? Uh, and let's take situation that is much more common and much less dramatic than you know, witnessing uh, a murder of George Floyd. Yeah? In the workplace, every day, all sorts of things happen, you know, microaggressions. Uh, happen. One of very well-known microaggressions is that, for example, women in meetings very, very often experience the situation that as a woman, I say something in a meeting, nobody kind of pays attention to it, meeting keeps going, two minutes later, uh, Daniel, being a man, <laughs> says something, and all of a sudden everybody heard it, and now we are talking about a brilliant idea suggested by Daniel. If Daniel uh, wants to be uh, my uh, ally in this situation, as he becomes aware that this happens, uh, he can say something like, wait a minute, why is it that in our 
company or in our team meetings, women are always ignored. We need to do something about it. So he is kind of escalating it to, to this level. Possible, can be done, can be effective. Uh, on the other hand, let's say Daniel is not much into confronting something like that, but he is becoming aware that uh, I am kind of being ignored or other women are being ignored. Uh, and what he can say when he heard me say something and meeting kept rolling, he can simply say, uh, wait a minute, Tatiana, you just said something really interesting. Could you please uh, kind of uh, say it one more time? I want to make sure that I got exactly what you are saying. Yeah, he is acknowledging what happened. He is being very uh, active bystander and he's been an ally, but he is not necessarily turning it into conflict or confrontation. Yeah, he is uh, actively witnessing and not letting anybody else to pretend that nothing happened. Yeah, so those are very different ways, both actually allowing for the same thing to, to happen. To add to, to uh, Tatiana's response, I would say another thing that is, is important uh, is, is to reframe a situation. In other words, one doesn't have to look at every situation as being directly confrontative uh, or conflictual. Uh, even in situations where harm is being done, there are other ways of thinking about what one is experiencing or seeing. And that has to do with our ability to reframe a situation. In other words, if someone uh, is, is uh, going on a rant or a rave and uh, telling racist or sexist jokes, and this happens all the time, uh, everywhere, um, one can jump in and interrupt uh, and, and do something that might feel confrontative much more directly. Or another way of going about this would be to ask a question to, to the person who is offering the racist or sexist joke and saying, how is this funny? Uh, and in trying to re-engage that person in a different way. And that has to do with our ability to use our creativity to reframe a situation so that maybe we're asking our brain to look at it differently. Um, especially if we're someone who is a conscientious objector or just is fearful, as most people are, of conflict or confrontation, we can find another way to think about what we're experiencing. And in order to do that, we have to take that breath, step a moment away from it to see it happening, and then re-enter. I think reframing is, is a, a very helpful thing. It's a very good skill to practice. Uh, and can make a difference in entering into a situation um, as an ally or an active bystander. What I really like about this question is that the person who is asking it is obviously in the place of awareness. Yeah, they, they see what's happening. They, they are aware, which is a big step from somebody who is oblivious, yeah? And being aware, the next step is to let the other person know, I see what's going on. I'm aware of it. Sometimes even like, let, let me come here and just stand next to you. 
and give you a feeling that you are not taking it alone, yeah, that you are not here by yourself, that it's not happening uh, unseenly for everybody around. Uh, that can make a big difference without even saying a word. Agree. And at a critical moment, some people find themselves struggling with a decision to step in, step in or not. What would you say about a situation when what's stopping us is not knowing if another person wants our help? I well, think that, yeah, thank you. Um, that question, I would take maybe a little bit from the intercultural perspective, yeah? We are in the culture, if we are talking about the United States, we are in the culture that um, kind of, uh, that values individualism, that values self-reliance, uh, things like that. Um, especially, I would say, in the white mainstream kind of culture, because many other cultures within the United States diversity um might operate in a more collective way yeah in a more uh, expectation that you know pe people kind of uh, help each other but the uh cultural norm that is driven by uh, the white cultural norm is individualism and self-sufficiency and self-reliance and for that reason uh I might be uh, questioning myself, you know, I feel like you might need help, but if I offer you help, how will it be taken? Yeah, because I'm sure everybody can share a story or two when they offered help and the person said, uh, who made you think that I need help here? Who made, made you think that I, that I am not capable of uh, doing something by myself? Uh, so in, in that, in that sense, I think, um, taking a risk of being told that I don't need your help might be a better risk than risking not to help when the person really, really needs it. Yeah. And, and maybe just saying, you know, uh, is there something I can help with? Yeah. Is there uh other than just jumping in and saying here i am on my white horse and help is 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 not as as tatiana said help is not an all or nothing uh, situation and you know from an intercultural perspective uh one person's thinking or uh application of help is another person's thinking or uh perspective on uh, aggression and so that moment where we're not sure is not an unhealthy situation. Uh, sometimes it's about self-protection. Sometimes it's really about step, stopping out and looking at the larger context and trying to understand it rather than only acting impulsively. Uh, and so asking that question to oneself, or as Tatiana just suggested, asking it to the other person, could you use a hand? Could you use some help? And, and relying and trusting that their judgment is what's right for them in that moment, uh, rather than making uh, an impetuous assumption that I'm going to go ahead and dive in regardless. Uh, these are healthy things to think about. And if you find yourself struggling with a decision to step in or not, 
it's that's a valuable thing for self-awareness for understanding our own personal triggers and also the content that we're presented with that's right in front of us uh, so we don't always know we're not always sure there is this moment of uh, ambiguity and ambivalence and this is where continuing training and, and workshops and professional development and discussions with colleagues can really make a difference. And also, when we are missing the moment, because sometimes we see the moment and we are not sure if we need to be jumping into help, and sometimes uh, we kind of realize that something happened and maybe that needed our help, but the moment kind of has passed. Uh, it might be a good conversation to have with either with the person who you think might have needed your help. Say, you know, this is what I observe. What am I missing? You know, was there space for me to be of help? Yeah. Uh, or uh, if you are not comfortable talking to a person for whom it happened, uh, talk to somebody else, you know, who might uh, know and understand the situation and ask, what am I missing? Because one of the things about being an ally is nobody knows everything. Nobody sees everything, nobody understands everything right when it happens. It is kind of an ongoing process of self-education. Uh, and sometimes our biggest learning happens when we make mistakes, when we are left with this discomfort of I didn't know what to do or I should have done something, you know, uh, that, you know, use it as an opportunity to be better educated for the next time when you might actually be able to be uh, an ally or able to step in as an active bystander because last time you didn't and you turned it into a learning opportunity for, for, for yourself. One more piece I'd like to add is what I'm going to call my defense of the power of the question. And in, in, in the work that we've been doing uh, and in the teaching that I've done over the past four or so decades, there is one three-word three question that really stands out. Uh, in terms of self-awareness, in terms of awareness of content and context, uh, and also just our natural human curiosity. Three, three words, but you put them together and it can make a world of difference. And, and that question is, is there more? Is there more? And in asking that question, we can get beneath and beyond the headlines, um, sometimes the superficial things that are very easy to observe and judge, uh, but get underneath them and really understand what's happening to an individual or a group of people that we might not see or hear or experience. And by asking the question, we are taking a step in. We are making ourselves vulnerable by saying, I don't know, tell me more. And we're showing that we care and we want to do something by finding out as much information as we can and then being able to act more judiciously on it rather than only impulsively. So I think the asking of questions here uh, can help move us forward, can propel us uh, to becoming effective and efficient active bystanders in a situation where we don't know everything. 
something so simple yet so important asking questions um to you know you know learning and making sure you get it right or at least try do your best to get it right well i'm so sorry to say but this is our final question however i think it's a great question to end on before i before i do ask the question i want to thank you both so much for coming back and for you know having this great conversation um yeah so the final question is what is key in trying to promote a culture or initiative of allyship in a company or workplace? This is the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast, after all. <laughs> in my perspective, a culture of allyship and initiative are two very different things. Um, in some ways, as Daniel and I were talking, you know, about uh, this work that we're doing, and um, we realized that the more culture is conducive to allyship, the less allyship is needed. Um, yes, situations might happen when, you know, somebody says or does something that needs to be addressed. But when culture, which is defined as this is how we do things here, is about people being curious about each other, being aware about each other, uh, being uh, ready and prepared to stand up for each other, uh, in this kind of culture, the likelihood of something that happening is much less than in a culture where people feel that it's really scary to say something. Yes, I see it, but I don't know if I can address it. I, I'll talk to you afterwards. Yes, you know, I feel for you, but I will not step in because uh, of retaliation or whatever else might be going on. Having an allyship initiative in this kind of culture will not make a difference, quite, quite uh, honestly, because initiative never addresses the systemic level yeah so in a sense if somebody wants to make sure that in their company they are um, really building this allyship muscle um, they need to make sure that they are looking at what is it in our culture that makes allyship necessary and how are we addressing that in addition to training people how to be allies and how to keep themselves safe in, uh, you know, a hot situation while still being able to uh, to help each other. Um, so individual work and systemic work have to go hand in hand. And a lot of internal work. It is about what does make me ready and prepared to be an ally uh, and deal with myself in, in this difficult moment. To just build on that last thought, uh, you know, oftentimes we think of initiatives and professional development seminars and in-service trainings, and the, voc the vocabulary is very extensive. Uh, but those are all things coming at us from outside, from external sources, from the quote experts whether they're internal to an organization or not. And there's a quieter side to it that, that uh, Tatiana just alluded to, which is 
how can we begin to take matters into our own hands? How can we begin to learn about ourselves and our trigger points, our personal challenges and so on? And, and, and oftentimes that kind of self-knowing and self-awareness uh, doesn't, doesn't, there's no room for it in the workplace. Uh, workplaces are, are busy. They're, they're and about enhancing productivity or services or programs. They're not necessarily about looking in. And we can take the time as individuals um, or small groups, both in the workplace, but more importantly, outside the workplace, to really build an internal personal culture of, of self-knowing and self-awareness that can really begin to break down the fear, the ignorance, the hesitation, and so on, um, by just truly getting to know ourselves. And I think that also it's important for all of us to recognize and deal with, with our own traumas and hardships, uh, because the fact that I've had some traumatic experiences might be a great uh, opening for my soul to be able to uh, connect with somebody else's pain. Or it might be something that will just say, you know, huh, I've been through it, now it's your turn. Uh, so uh, it does take all kinds of, again, our own human work uh, to be able to be there for each other in with real compassion and real willingness to, to support one another. Workplaces are phenomenal learning laboratories for people. Uh, they're opportunities to build relationships, not only based on transactions, but based on people. And oftentimes we find ourselves living and working in a very extroverted culture. And the piece that can get left out or left behind is the peace within ourselves. And there's a double entendre there. Peace can be spelled as in a small part of ourselves, but also a sense of peace and calm and understanding and self-knowing that can lead to a, a feeling of grace within ourselves, uh, inner self-confidence, greater self-competence, and these are these are skills and processes that are uh, integral to uh, becoming an active bystander and an effective ally. Um, without them, we find that we're often just reacting to situations um, based on what's dictated from outside and not from a sense of knowing ourselves. I think the combination of the two uh, is really incredibly important. Thank you again, Tatiana and Daniel, for coming back and giving us an opportunity to continue this very important conversation. And thank you to all our listeners for joining. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to email Tatiana and Daniel at connecting.differences at gmail.com and Daniel C. Yellowitz at gmail.com. New episodes of the Forum podcast are now available on our website, forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward slash podcast. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day.
The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. An Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.